Hi, friends, and welcome to All Things Relatable, a place where stories are shared. It's hard to put a value on a story because the lasting effects it can have are often priceless. An individual's story has the potential to impact our lives in tremendous ways. My hope for you in joining me today is that this episode resonates with you and that you leave enlightened, ignited, and inspired because it only takes one moment to spark a change and leave an everlasting effect. My next guest, I am Ellie, has an unbelievable story to share with us today, one that is movie worthy. And although it hasn't hit the big screen yet, Mike's story has been shared through a musical. And once we dive in, you'll understand why. Hey, Mike, I'm so happy to have you here on the podcast today. Thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Okay, I want to know, can you give us a quick rundown of what your childhood was like and what it was like growing up so we can kind of get a sense about who you were and how you identified before the pivotal shift in your life? Sure. You know, as a child, gosh, I was um, a little bit of a rambunctious, loud child, so I was often breaking glasses because I was speaking so enthusiastically that I was like hitting things and glasses would fly off the table. Um, But uh, more related to this story, you know, I um, was pretty successful early in life. So um, in my mid-20s, oh, even earlier, I'm 22 years old, I actually started a public relations firm and I worked with some top, you know, um, executives in the field. I specialized in healthcare reform. I worked with tech billionaires, politicians, you name it. And then one day in my mid-20s, I woke up and I was vomiting blood. And you can probably imagine that was pretty scary. Um, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I just woke up in the morning vomiting blood. Um, That didn't stop for about two months straight. So I vomited blood almost every day for about two months. And I remember recognizing how bad it got. Uh, It was a day I was able to go into the office still. I was still getting sick every day, but I was going into the office and I realized I had to go to the bathroom. And so I ran to the bathroom, I closed the door and I didn't make it to the toilet in time. And I had an accident. I shit my pants at work. And, you know, this was in my mid-20s. I was humiliated. Um, I realized my body was breaking down and I felt like I was going to die. And so this was kind of a huge wake-up call for me that, um, you know, it's gotten to such a point that this has to become my full-time job, trying to get better, because I don't know what to do anymore. And so I... (laughs) That was probably the shifting moment of my life, but I cleaned myself off, got someone to buy me shorts, got a um, cab and snuck out of there. And after that, it was kind of a blitz. Every day I was going to Reiki, reflexology, acupuncture, herbalism, like you name it. Even if I've never heard of this modality, I was trying it because I just needed anything. I was going from doctor to doctor, getting different diagnoses. I spent a night in the emergency room. I was just like anything that could help me. And um, while this was going on, I had two roommates at the time. So I had um, one, they were, it was kind of a ragtag team of people. Um, one guy I knew from college, we just needed a place to live. And then my older sister's friend had just moved to the city. So it was just kind of the random roommates, not Craigslist random, but we were all pretty random. We didn't know each other that well. And my older sister's friend had a boyfriend. So she was home less than half the week. And this guy I knew from college, his name's Garrett. 
just by chance, he was on residency for um, a pharmacy residency, so he knew the medical system. He was also just home. And so by chance, he became my de facto caretaker. And he would drive me to appointments. He would pick up my prescriptions. Um, when it got so bad that I couldn't leave the house, he would grocery shop for me. When it got so bad that I couldn't get off the couch, he would actually cook me dinner and even clean up my blood when I was vomiting blood. And about two months into this process, I realized I was developing feelings for him. And to kind of give you some context to my mindset at the time, this was weird for me because up until that point in my life, I had never been with a man. To my conscious knowledge, never been interested in a man. And I had lots of gay friends. I felt like, at least I thought of myself, as a very bohemian, open person. Um, but for whatever reason, never interested in men. Totally fine for me. And Garrett had just gotten out of a six-year relationship with a woman. And so in my mind, there was obviously no way that he was interested either. But, you know, I was so afraid that I was going to die that I was doing some crazy things in my life. I was writing handwritten letters to every member of my family saying everything I've never said out loud. Like, it kind of any radical therapy, I was doing it. And so I'm sitting there thinking... If I feel something, I have no idea if this is real. I have no idea if this is like, you know, this is just a human within proximity and I'm afraid I'm going to die. I don't know what this is, but I also know that I can't stuff things down anymore because blood is coming up, things are coming up. And so I just decided I'm going to say something. I don't know if I'm going to get punched in the face. I don't know if I'm getting kicked out of my home. But I also know that when you are at that kind of bottom of your barrel, you are willing to do things you never thought you could do. And so I went up to Garrett one day and I said to him, you know, Garrett, I don't even know how to talk about this. Um, but over these last few months, as you've cared for me, I feel something. And it doesn't feel sexual. It doesn't even feel romantic. But it feels like more than friendship. And I don't know how to talk about it, but I need to kind of present this to you. And I'm really fortunate that Garrett is probably the most thoughtful person in the world. And so he said, okay, <laughs> I mean, this is a surprise, but let me, let me sit with this. I don't know how to react right now. And we did a lot of emailing back and forth, which I think is kind of funny to say right now because we live together. But I realized at the time, you know, emailing allowed us to collect our thoughts in a way that we didn't have kind of someone right in front of us. Um, we didn't have to worry about their reaction. And we could also process an email by ourselves on our own time and respond as we've collected our thoughts. And so over the course of the next few months, we had a number of conversations kind of talking about and exploring this. And we ultimately decided to explore a relationship. And it wasn't physical at first. It was purely an emotional relationship. Um, we still dated women. And I used to call it an open relationship. But recently, someone said to me, I think you were just dating. It just so happened that you lived together. Like, it's an unorthodox situation. But, like, most people, yes, are still dating other people when they're first together. This is just dating. And so we were still dating women as well as we were exploring each other. And we did this for about a year and a half. And it was probably, not probably, it was definitely the hardest year and a half of my life because not only were we doing this, but it was in secret. You know, we weren't telling a lot of people in our lives because we didn't know if it was real. You know, at this point, I was still really sick. So what if I got better and it was just a fluke, right? We weren't actually interested in this. Um, you know, it felt, and at the same time, I, you know, 
and vomiting blood, I knew I probably shouldn't stay in my job. And so I was leaving my job and I did the thing I never, ever, ever recommend anyone listening do, which is I gave a year's notice at work. You know, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. I was an owner of this company, right? So I was kind of like, I have to get them in a good place. I have to kind of restructure some things. There were programs that um, I ran that nobody knew about. They had to kind of pass off. So there were a lot of technical pieces. It was probably overly generous, I know. Um, but part of it also was me figuring out my next move because I didn't have a next move too. So that was kind of that piece. And it was such a stressful year because I'm navigating my first same-sex relationship. I'm trying to figure out what's wrong with me and heal myself. I'm being phased out of this job and I'm taking herbalism school, nutrition school, spiritual classes, you name it. Like I am just taking what I can take. And that year ended, Garrett and I got our own place, just the two of us, that year ended. We decided this was real and we were going to tell people. And so it all kind of happened at about the same point. Um, and we told our families about our relationship. Most people were good. Everyone got there eventually. We won't name names today, but people, you know, got there. And so now we're in this relationship, you know, our closest friends and family know. And I didn't know what I was doing with my career. And so I was kind of the um, herbalist and health coach to Boston's tech entrepreneurs because I got really sick. These people were very stressed. I knew what it was like, so I wanted to help them. And I did that for a little bit, but I didn't love it. It wasn't my passion. And so I thought, well, crap, Mike, you left this amazing job making all this money. Like, you've got to figure something out. And I thought, well, I was really successful at a young age. It wasn't what it was cracked up to be. I could write about that, redefining success. Like that's my experience, not my relationship yet, but that. And so I started a blog and it got decently popular. And about three months into starting this business and writing this blog, I got an email one day from a book publisher and said, can I give you a book deal? I was like, wait, wait, is this how it happens? Yeah, yes, if you're gonna pay me to do what I'm doing, yes, you can give me a book deal. And so I had an advance and I wrote this book um, about redefining success, my own story. And the editor herself was queer. And she said, Mike, I think your relationship is a hugely important part of this book. You need to talk about, you know, uh, discovering yourself inside and outside of labels. And so I put that in the book, turned in that manuscript. And then I think, oh, shit. Like, I have to tell people about this. I mean, they can't find out on the shelves of Barnes & Noble. I have to tell people before this book comes out. And so, you know, my close friends knew, my family knew, but most people in my life didn't know. And I thought about having one-on-one -on -one conversations with all these people in my life in mass, and it sounded exhausting. And I said, I don't want to deal with everyone's emotional freakouts. Like, this is not really what I want. And so I thought, okay, well, I'm a writer. I can write about this. You know, I already have a blog. Um, I'm just going to share that. Everyone can have talk behind my back. And then they can come to me when they process. This feels so much better. And so I write this blog post. And at the time, I was writing for a few national publications. Um, and one of those publications picks up this blog post. And so I go to bed that night. I wake up the next morning and 100,000 people had shared it overnight. I can't quite describe that feeling, what it's like to wake up to millions of people talking about your sex life. Um, but it is a strange one. Uh, I had missed calls from, you know, NPR and Huffington Post and all these major outlets who wanted to talk to me. I had hundreds of emails a day, maybe thousands, 
um, a lot of hate mail, kind of negative homophobic things. I had negative messages from even queer community telling me I don't belong or I'm not a part of this community. I had people accusing me of lying. Or on the other end, I had people ask me to headline a pride parade, which I felt completely underqualified for. And people were asking me to defend a sexuality that, quite frankly, I wasn't very clear on. And so it was an intense experience right there. Um unbelievable like there's so much to unpack in all of that like up until this point like absolutely unbelievable um there's a couple things that came up you said you wrote this book redefining success you were very successful at a young age that's very young 22 to be where you were at so after getting to that point and realizing mm, this isn't all cracked up what I thought it was going to be, what is your definition or your redefining of what success feels like or is to you today? Yeah. Well, what's beautiful is I've gotten to spend the last almost decade exploring this um, for myself, and this is what I do for work today, where what I'm really interested in is helping people to map their lived experiences and figure out what's that thing you subconsciously do every time you're successful, what it feels like for you. What's that thing that you know, your lived experience says you're sensitive to and you feel deeper than anyone in the world? And so for me, that thing is the same as what is my identity outside of sexual labels. And that is aligned, zany, free, unmistakable, successful, and vulnerable. And as you listen to my stories, you're going to hear lots of vulnerability, lots of weird zaniness. I can't help myself. This is who I am. It's my gift to the world. It's everything I create for anyone. But it's also what I'm sexually attracted to. It's what I love, my passions and my gifts. And I know if I feel those six words, that is a successful and fulfilling situation for me. Okay. Can you say those six words once again? I can, you can I all can. hear them again. Aligned, zany free, unmistakable, successful, and vulnerable. Um, all of it is absolutely just incredible. And I, I love what you're doing, helping people to figure that out, right? Because success, it, it is like a feeling, the way that you feel. Like some people might think of success as like freedom, like freedom, your time mm -hmm. or success might feel yeah. like calm and ease or energized or um, connected, like success is like that feeling within you and it could be different for different people, but you figured out what it was for you. So you can yes. embody that. And for other people to be around someone who is like embodying all of the, the feelings that success is like, that's kind of like a breath of fresh air. You know, what I love, what I always say to people is I want everything in life from my job, my relationship, sexuality, a podcast to feel like coffee with a best friend. I want to just feel that kind of hours fly by and genius spills out and it's so easy and so comfortable and I don't second guess myself, right? And that's what, you know, basically the work that I do today is I try to help people to figure out what is that for them? How do they use their own language? which describe their own experiences and then how do they build a life, business, whatever around that. Um, but let me uh, leave that and offer that to everybody. Think about what coffee with a best friend feels like for you. If you can start to describe that to yourself, that's what true, fulfilling, sustainable success feels like to you.
Mm-hmm. Just like a feel good that you can't even really describe it in words like that feeling. And exactly. Yeah. But, but the cool thing is we actually can describe it in words. People are so good. Like the thing is, I always say to people, what vulnerable means to me might be very different than what it means to you. And that's awesome. I, you know, I am uh, skeptical of most personality tests because Myers-Briggs, any of these tests, Enneagram, whatever, I love all of them, but it's someone else's language to describe experiences. I want to talk about my experience in my language, my connotations. What does that mean to me? And that has honestly radically changed my life. To be able to, any fight I have with my husband, I can say, boom, go through six words and figure out why am I triggered? What's the thing, the sensitivity that's getting triggered in this moment? Because I now have an ability to understand if anything is off in my life, it one, at least one of these six words is off. And what is that and how can I make a shift quickly? Oh, that's so powerful. When you know, then you can really tune into that and figure out what what piece you need to put the time and energy into. Another thing that you said that really, I don't know, I just thought was so, you said it a couple times, was the writing things out. Like when you first were in this relationship, it was an email so that you could say what you needed to say. Nobody was Mm -hmm. right there. They could process it in their own time and then come back with their thoughts. And then also when you were kind of coming out to the world, I guess, or yeah. some people, some mm-hmm. friends and that didn't know, then they too, it's written in words that they could take it, process it, have that time and space. I feel like that can be really important in conversation or, mm-hmm. or, or in different um, yeah. confrontation that it's like, okay, I've had time for it to just kind of stir and think about it and to have different space for, to kind of feel it all to then respond or, or to do whatever with it. But that is something I think is, is so, could be so powerful in different relationships because it, it can be in words and it can hold space and it can give each person time to really, to really think instead of responding right away when they haven't had a time to actually process and dig into all of it. You know, I am so grateful in retrospect, not in the moment, but in retrospect for all that's happened because my relationship with my husband, by the way, we're still married today. Uh, Garrett, we got married. Um, We've been together over 10 years now. Um, But my relationship, because of the foundation, because of how the relationship had to start, um, we are radically honest with one another in a way that I think uh, is almost comical. Like, for example, let's say that we're in a fight and I say, okay, I'm going to the room, like, leave me alone, don't talk to me. But if you don't come check within 10 minutes, I'm going to be even more mad. <laughs> and like, there's this way of having to kind of ask for space in some ways, but also get over ourselves and kind of humble ourselves and be really radically honest because ultimately early in our relationship, if we weren't that honest, things wouldn't have worked out. And so it kind of forced us, you know, we were exploring things that we weren't comfortable with. I mean, uh, people ask me a lot of times, you know, you were in love. I bet the first time that you kissed, it felt so right and natural. And no, I I will tell you, um, I had never felt facial hair while kissing someone before. So it did not feel natural. And that was something I wasn't comfortable with for a while. And so there was this dance, this step forward and backward. And um, I know we, you alluded to the fact that there's a musical about this experience that I'll talk about in a moment that we recently got to see the musical and watching that 
be played out on stage was fascinating to watch this period because, um, you know, I told the story, you just heard it, everyone, of um, our relationship, and I glossed over the first six months because how do I talk about that, right? And we don't have enough time or space in this interview to talk about that. But this, and I talk about the story all the time now, you know, it's been over eight years since that article came out, but this musical is only those first six months. And it is, wants to explore the messy bits. It wants to explore every painstaking feeling. And with the music, what I loved about it is every member of the audience can feel this. And it's a universal story. It's not just about my one situation. It's not just about you know sexuality or sexual fluidity. It's about love and how love forces us to change and grow and be honest in radical ways. And love is always surprising. I mean, I don't know anyone who fell in love with the exact person they wrote down on a page, right? Like love always surprises us. And so although my story may be unique in some ways, what was beautiful about watching an audience watch it is I could see the resonance for every single member, regardless of their lived experience. Oh, wow. Um... Yeah. How did that musical come about? And did you have any say into it? Because if this is a musical about your relationship in that six months, seeing someone else put it together, were you able to say like, you know, it's like this or take that out or it's not like this or you're not getting it right or this is yeah. perfect? You know, it's such a journey. So what happened was I was getting hundreds or thousands of emails a day. And most of them were either, you know, attacking me or sexualizing me or something that didn't feel good to me. And then um, I didn't even remember why I responded to this email, although I've more recently talked to the producers and kind of remembered. They emailed me about six months after the article came out. And from their end, what happened was they were looking for a project. They were looking for, they both uh, queer themselves, and they were looking for a um, true story to base a musical off of. And um, both had independently read this article and said they had proposed this. And they said, well, this guy, you know, NPR is talking to him. All these people, like, we're never going to get an interview with him. We're never going to get to talk to him. And so they emailed me about six months after the article came out. And I think at the time, they were young. Um, they were in grad school, I think. And I kind of thought they're eager, they're earnest, they seem like nice and cute and like if I'm helping their project, sure. And so it wasn't really like I thought this was ever going to go anywhere or be anything. It was more that these seemed like nice guys. And um, they came to Boston and they interviewed both of us, Garrett and myself, for an hour each. I honestly didn't know that they recorded this or remember it until meeting the actors and the actors told me how they memorized my interview so much but um so i we gave this interview about our experiences to kind of augment what the article said because a thousand words can't give that much um and they went off and i didn't hear from them for years so this was in 2015 they came to boston i didn't hear from them for years and i hadn't thought much of it and then summer 2020 you know it's covid the world has shut down and they had more free time, like many of us, and they had finished the script. And so it had been, you know, at this point, like six years or five years since they had started working on it. They finished the script, finished the songs, and they had sent me a recording of one of them. And it was unbelievably beautiful. And I don't like musicals in general. I'm not really a musical person. Um, it was just 
incredible. And so they had years before when they were in college started um, at Wagner College a, a student-run group. Basically, it was a theater company within the school. And even though they left, this company was still ongoing. And so they partnered with the company for free resources to actually put this on and workshop this. And so they, they got another email saying, hey, we're going to workshop this, you know, the script. And they had sent me a few different drafts. And, um, you know, I think I kept trying to remind myself they have to take creative liberties. Like this isn't just, this isn't about me. It's not 100% factual. It can't be, you know. Um, but they, I got another email after they put in this workshop that they were going to send us um, a full reading. And so we actually got to see the full reading. Uh, recorded. And that was probably the hardest part because Garrett and I had to stop it a few times early on and be like, it didn't happen that way. And I said, okay, calm down. Like it's, you know, this isn't, it's not us. This is, doesn't, it's a story inspired by us. And I think what really helped was to learn that both of the writers had um, resonated with so much of it and put some of their own story in there. And that's when I realized, wait a minute, this isn't about me. This is a universal story, right? And I'm so grateful I could have inspired this. And then a friend of mine um, told me that he, uh, he's a little bit older, he was on the, in the process of coming out during the Ellen episode. I don't know if you remember Ellen coming out episode. Mm -hmm. And he uh, was contemplating his own suicide. And seeing that episode, and more specifically seeing Oprah, who had you know, obviously such a huge platform, going to bat for queer people uh, changed his mind and changed his life and realized, oh my God, there are stories like this, there are people like me, and there are people who are willing to go to bat for people like me. And that, when I heard that, I said, you know what? I'm getting over myself. Who cares if some details have changed, right? Like, if this can save somebody's life, if this can really make that difference, I'm all for this. And so I think what was great is the producers will tell you, uh, Garrett and I are very, very easygoing. I think it's because we had to have this reckoning. We're kind of like, yeah, sure. You know, Mike turns into an alcoholic, go for it. Mike, and you know, they ended up, <laughs> to be honest with you, watching it, it was way more biographical and factual than I expected it to ever be. It was very, you know, I didn't, I must've told them some personal things because it was very accurate. Um, but we got another email last winter that they got into the New York Theater Festival. And so there was going to be premiere at the festival which was a you know great honor and so we got to go over to New York and see the show and go to the after party and meet the cast which was a surreal experience to um, meet people who have been studying you for a year and like really trying to you know my actor um, his name's um, Grayson Riley um, who played me in this uh, iteration he said um, his biggest fear was letting me down and I was like Grayson it was so sweet. I said, Grayson, like, you have a relationship with that mic, and I have a relationship with that mic, and that mic gets to exist outside of both of us. Like, that gets to be someone, because that's not me. You know, we can't possibly be me as a human. And so it was, um, yeah, a surreal experience. That is unbelievable. Um, I want to go back, though, because we didn't kind of go through this part. You and Garrett said you were you were dating and it was like a year and a half where you you dated or dated other people. When did the two of you make the decision that it was just going to be the two of you and you're going to pursue the relationship? And that, you know, you said in the beginning, like, you know, maybe 
I'm, I'm sick and one, I won't be sick. Mm -hmm. And then I'll be like, yeah. Oh, this was just kind of a thing. When did you realize that it wasn't just like my life might be ending. I've got to say exactly how I feel. It might just be because of, of whatever reason. Mm -hmm. And they're like, when, when did you guys decide that? There were, there are a number of moments, but two that come to mind, you know, one was, um, I remember Garrett, uh, I saw him kissing a woman and I felt jealous. And it was the first time I had felt jealous. And I thought, okay, something is changing here, right? Like something is shifting with that. And we had a conversation about that. And that started the process of us thinking, maybe we want to be exclusive. You know, I don't think this is unique for any relationships. I think this is a situation many relationships go through. And the second instance was when I really, really knew I was in love with him. Um, and it was, I was just getting better. So I was feeling better now today. Um, in case anyone's interested, I was diagnosed with a few things, but primarily severe pancreatitis and infections in a few major organs. Um, I do have a dairy-free, gluten-free, you know, diet today. I have to manage my stress, and I occasionally do have flare-ups, but um, I'm a lot better. So uh, that a few changes in my life. But I was getting better, and I went to I went out for the first time. I went to a Christmas party in a section of Boston that is notoriously bad for parking. It's all cobblestone streets, very, very small. And Garrett was on residency still. He had to work at the hospital until midnight, and it was across the city. So he was definitely not coming to this party. And I was at the party, and it was about 12.30, and I was just getting ready to go home. And I looked over in the corner, and there's Garrett sitting, having a drink in his scrubs. And I, I couldn't believe this. I said, what, what is going on here? So I walked over to him, and I said, what's wrong with you? Like, you have worked 12 hours today at this hospital. It's a snowstorm tonight. You know, you have to find parking in these cobblestone streets. Why are you here? You know, aren't you exhausted? And he said, well, you're right. I did have, you know, a 12-hour day. And I was getting in my car, and I was about to drive home, and I realized I had a day focused on everyone else, and I wanted something for me. And so I drove across the city, you know, fought through the snow, parked because I realized that if, I went home and I'm exhausted. I would just fall asleep. You would have to take public transportation. That'd be a half hour later and I'd never be up to see you. And I wanted something for me. I wanted to see you. So I parked and all I wanted was to sit, have one drink, watch you tell stories because I could watch you tell stories all night and then drive you home and kiss you goodnight and go to bed. And I thought, well, shit, now I have to marry this man. And so I think that that was you know, kind of those two things were pivotal moments that stick out in my mind as conversations we had afterwards that, okay, this is real and this is a serious relationship. Yeah, I felt as soon as you, you told that story, you have, you have to marry him. You have to, there's no other option. Oh, that just was like hit all the heartstrings, like. Wow. And is he as, as open, you're very open about telling your story. And obviously you've got uh, the musical and he's been a part of it. Is he as open with sharing as you are, or is that something that you kind of take the lead on? I definitely take the lead on, you know, vulnerable is one of those sensitivities I mentioned. And so my kind of life, I don't know how to not be vulnerable. Um, Garrett is definitely a more private, quiet person. Um, you know, he has, uh, you know, it's interesting actually, because seeing you portrayed on stage or depictions of you on stage kind of tells you a little bit about some assumptions people make of you. And so there's kind of, of course, caricatures of us, right? Mike is this kind of 
loud party boy, which I was when I was younger, and very open to transformation. And Garrett, as a character, is very, very reserved. And when they first workshopped it, the overall criticism was that Garrett is unlikable because he's too, um, you know, reserved, too, like, doubtful about the relationship. He's always putting the brakes on. And I really thought about that, and I thought, well, that's true. But And so I kind of gave the producers a little bit of feedback of how I know that to be a superpower for Garrett in his life. You know, when I was growing up, when I was dating, you know, women, I was in lots of relationships, I was always dating someone who was kind of deep and intense and challenging me and pushing me to grow. And that's always what I wanted. Garrett is not that. And I remember my mom said, you know, early in our relationship, you are always looking for someone to challenge you and push you and make you be your best self. And you'll never find that because that's who you are. You don't want someone who makes you go faster. You want someone who makes you want to slow down and enjoy the moment. And that's what Garrett is. And I think that, you know, I'm so grateful for everything he is. We have this joke we say sometimes where I always say, you know, you would never grow or change or evolve if it wasn't for me. And he's like, yeah, that's probably true. But you wouldn't survive <laughs> daily life if it weren't for me. And I think that's completely accurate to how our relationship goes. So I'm definitely probably more outspoken about our relationship. But he's been so supportive and um you know it's really exciting to see him evolve because we have this time capsule the producers have told us you know listening to those interviews who garrett is over those last eight years is a completely different person and he's opened up in so many ways right it is like a time capsule this one moment in your life because we all grow and evolve and change and who you yeah. were 10 years ago isn't who you are today yeah. you're you're an evolution so okay so he came in his scrubs and you're like i am marrying this man in my mind i'm thinking obviously garrett's like feeling the same way if he that's his he just wants to have a drink and see you talk and so how long were you dating before you um got engaged did you get engaged who proposed to who like how long did this go on and, and did you both like no okay I guess you're we're getting married you know you're opening a can of worms here because I have a story the engagement story is a story so I um you know I knew and we started talking about it shortly after that that you know I want to marry him and when I that moment I saw in my mind exactly where I was proposing and it was this particular balcony on the Amalfi Coast in Italy because he had never been to Europe. He had never seen the Mediterranean. And I just decided the first time he saw the Mediterranean was when I was going to propose. And so, um, you know, I had a new business. I didn't make so much money that I could make this a surprise and hide tens of thousands of dollars, you know, right away and not seem stressed about money. And so four and a half years after this, so it was a bit later, also Garrett, like I mentioned, is very kind of conservative and reserved, and he wanted me to meet every extended family member possible. So like, you know, there was definitely a slow process, and his family's from Pennsylvania, so we don't see them quite as often. Um, and so I knew his family really well, and I knew I wanted to propose, and I knew I wanted it to be a surprise. And so I told him in 2016 to take a week off of work, and we were just going to do something local, and um, I was planning this trip. And I, at that point, I think I could only afford the tickets. So I bought tickets to uh, Rome. 
And then um, as it got closer, I was able to buy a watch. It has um, little diamonds around for the hours. And that was what I was going to propose with. And I went and I actually pretended I was at a yoga retreat in Syracuse. But I flew down to um, stay with his ex-girlfriend, um, who was you know, still a friend of ours, an important part of her li his life because she was such a part of the story. And she drove me to their parents' hometown so I could ask for everybody's blessing. And so that was a secretive uh, weekend. I had to kind of sneak my way around, which was tough because I knew who'd check flight tracker on the way home. And I was coming from a different airport than I said. And that was a whole thing. But um, finally, the day came when we were going to Italy. And it was a night flight. It was an 11 p.m. flight. So I kept saying, oh, we're just going to hit the road when you get out of work. And so I wasn't telling him if we were driving or flying. I kept saying, you know, I wouldn't put a knife in your carry-on, but otherwise, you know, you do you. And so, you know, I found out where he kept his passport. I was all ready to grab it the night before. And then he tells me, you know, nobody ever needs their passport, right? He tells me he's teaching classes at a university, and the day we're leaving needs his passport for tax reasons. I'm like, are you kidding me? You're going to have your passport on you like the one time in your life. So he comes home from that and says, Mike, the one thing you need to tell me is will I need my passport because I don't want to bring it and then lose it. And I was like, shit, Mike, you've just got to commit at this point. Like figure something out. And so I said, no, you're not going to need it. Just go put it away. So why don't you go pack the car? And I just sprinted into the bedroom, found that passport, zipped it up as he's coming up the stairs. Um, and I said, oh, no, no, not that car. I mean the Uber I just ordered. And so we get in an Uber. Now, you know, you can put in the address ahead of time, so you don't have to tell the driver where you're going, because I didn't want to say we're going to the airport. But this is what a psycho I am, if you can't tell already. So <laughs> I, st I knew we couldn't get dropped off at Terminal E, because in Boston, that's international, and he'd know we'd be going international. So I got us dropped off at Terminal C because um, it's JetBlue. We fly JetBlue a lot, and I'm studying the blueprint of the airport. And there's a passageway from C to E, so I know we can walk through these. So we get over there. I get dropped off um, C. We go over to the JetBlue kiosk, and I say, oh, my God, you know, F, screw it, screw it, shit. He's like, what is it? What did you forget? And I said, can you just hold this? And I gave him his passport. And he said, wait, why would you bring your passport? Wait, this is my passport. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you hold these? And I gave him three books on Rome. And he's like, what's going on? I said, when you get up tomorrow morning, you'll be in Rome. We're getting on a plane to Rome tonight. And he was in a daze. So I, I brought him over. And I knew he was going to call his mom. And Garrett's mom, you know, God love her, is one of the worst <laughs> liars I have ever met. The worst. And so I said, Cheryl, you got to work with me here. So he's going to call you and tell you that we're going to Italy. You know that, but not that we're getting engaged. So there's like a multi-layer lie going on here. You've got to be able to do this. So she did it fine. We get on the plane, and I said, Garrett, we can do the local thing. We can do the touristy thing. This is your trip. You plan it. My only rule is halfway through the trip, we're going to go to the Amalfi Coast. So we've got you know three and a half days in Rome, three and a half days in Amalfi. And so we get on that plane. We get to Rome. Um, the weather was supposed to rain every single day that we were there. So we had our raincoats. We had our umbrellas, but it didn't. It was beautiful. So we're always lugging this raincoat or umbrella around, but it's okay because it was beautiful out. And we had a wonderful time in Rome. And now the day is coming that we need to catch the train to Amalfi. And, um, you know, it's a two o'clock train, I think. And just between, you know, non-refundable uh, hotel there, no hotel here, we would have lost like $1,000 if we missed this train. So we cannot miss this train. 
And so I said, Garrett, what's the last thing you want to do before we leave Rome? And he said, you know, um, I would kick myself if I didn't go to the Vatican. Uh, he's a huge art history buff. Um, his favorite piece in the world is in the Vatican Museums. He just felt like he needed to see this. So I said, okay. On a Saturday in the summer, great. All right, we're going to try and make this work. So we get over to the Vatican, and it's the first day that it's not supposed to rain. So we're so grateful to not lug our, you know, umbrellas or our raincoats. We get out there, we get in line, and they tell me it's going to be about a two-hour wait. I'm like, oh, they always over-exaggerate. They try to scare the tourists away. Just get in line. Don't worry about it. It starts downpouring. So we don't have our raincoat or umbrella. It is just downpouring on us. So we are miserable. And now I have to pee. And I can't get out of this line because we cannot miss our spot here. And Garrett starts getting hungry. And it's raining so hard that we had to buy a 10 euro poncho just to, you know, from the people coming around just to wrap around his camera so his camera didn't break. And we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting some more. We're finally, two and a half hours later, three people from the front of the line. And Garrett said, you know, it's not worth the $40 or whatever it is to go inside. Let's get out of line. So after two and a half hours of standing in the rain, I have to pee so badly, we leave this line. So that's fine, whatever, let's just go grab a bite to eat, go pee, and get out of here. Well, I think it was like 12.45, and some places in Vatican City can be very particular. Nobody's opening until 1. So nobody will let us in to go to the bathroom, <laughs> nobody's letting us eat, and I have to pee so badly... And I'm just like, you know what? Screw it. No one's letting me in, even just to pee. So I said, Garrett, let's just take the metro home. We'll pee at home. We'll go eat at the train station. And so we go over to the metro. It's still pouring. And there's people standing out in the rain. And I said, what's going on? There's a huge line. And I asked somebody, and they said, oh, there's a delay between these three stops, which were the only stops we needed. So now we can't take the metro home. So I said, Garrett, we are speed walking home because it is a disaster. <laughs> we cannot miss this train. So we've got this map that is disintegrating in our hands, of course. We, you know, can't read the street signs which are etched in Roman letters into the buildings. Long story short, the bridge we wanted went one way. The bridge we took went a different way. We are now further away from our hotel. We are bickering now. And my only thought is, screw this. I'm not proposing today, right? I'm not doing this. Like, I have spent thousands of dollars, years of planning this thing. I am... It will be the second time he sees the Mediterranean, not the first. I don't care. I'm just not proposing. And so I remember, um, I didn't remember this at the time, but before I left, a friend of mine who's Hindu sent me a prayer to the Hindu god Ganesha. For whatever reason, she felt that this was important. It's the elephant like God. Um, and so I did this prayer. I didn't think anything of it. Well, I'm sitting in the middle of Rome. We're bickering. And I see a mural of Ganesha in the middle of Rome. And I'm like, okay obstacles here for a reason pay attention mike so you know i remember this piazza garrett remembers that piazza long story short we find our way back to the hotel i sprint upstairs to pee he grabs a power bar and we go down to the metro station with all of our bags to go catch the train we get to the metro station and we had weekly passes so i put mine in i go through the turnstile he goes to put his in he says oh shit it was in my front pocket it's now disintegrated so I said, oh, my God, I'm going to have to get you to get the machine into English to get that. Like, I have to yell this. It's a Saturday, busy train station in Rome. No one's helping an American here. So I'm trying to yell to him how to do this. He finally orders a ticket, puts it in, and it doesn't work. So I'm like, Garrett, we have, like, one more shot at this. Go back. you got to try it again. So he puts it in. It works. 
So we take the metro over to Roma Damini, the main train station in Italy. So, you know, 40 trains going at any given time. It's a very, very, very busy train station. We've got about 10 minutes until the train leaves at this point. And so I said, you know, Garrett, this is where it's going to say, you know, which platform. I'm going to go around and make sure what I printed out offline is okay if I have to exchange it for a physical ticket. And so I come back. There's about two minutes left. Nothing's posted. Everything before and after it says, you know, delayed, nothing there. I said, Garrett, I don't know if, like, the light is out, but we've just got to go through security and run up and down all 40 trains and jump on our train. We don't have an option. So we go through. We run up and down all the trains. We cannot find the train. We are freaking out now because it was literally less than two minutes. Now, uh, who knows how long, maybe a minute, maybe less. And I run over to a conductor and I just, I'm screaming. I'm like, please help me. Can you just call it in? What track number? He's like, no, I think you're confused. No, no, I'm not. I understand. Just please call it in. So he calls in and he says, oh my God, you're le- the train's leaving in less than a minute. Run. So you can imagine, we are sweaty and disgusting and wet, like wet rats here. We've got all of our bags, all of our luggage for Italy, and we are sprinting down this platform. It's like a scene from a movie. I'm not, I wish I were joking. We jump up onto the train, and within 10 seconds, the train takes off. So now I am sweaty. I am disgusting. I am miserable. And my only thought is, screw this. I'm not proposing today. I'll do it another day. I'm not doing it today. It's just not going to happen. And then Garrett turns to me and says, you know, it's so weird for everything that went wrong today. You would have thought we would have turned on each other, but we didn't. We worked together as a team. Isn't that weird? And I thought, well, shit, now I have to propose today. <laughs> so we, we take this train ride for three hours down. You know, I put his watch in my raincoat because God knows it's still raining. And we walk a mile in the rain when we get off to the hotel. But it is on. Like, at this point, I am just determined. I don't care if it is raining out there. I'm proposing. And so we check into the hotel. I say, hey, do you want to go check out the rooftop? Who in their right mind would want to check out the rooftop at this moment? But Garrett was like, okay, I guess so. So we get out to the rooftop. And it's only drizzling at this point, thankfully. And I said you know, hey, why don't you go check out that castle in the distance? And so he goes to look at the castle that he obviously can't see through the fog. And I get down on one knee. And at this point, I'm not going to lie, I had no plan. I was kind of like, everything I had put together was shot to shit. I thought, I'm a writer. I'm going to wing this. I'll figure something out. And so he turns back around. And I could tell he was nervous. Like he knew I must have been gotten down on one knee. And I said, Garrett, I'm not going to lie to you. I woke up this morning and then everything went to shit. Everything went wrong. Like, I was planning on proposing to you, and everything went wrong that could have went wrong. And I thought, screw this. Like, I'm not proposing today. I have put thousands of dollars into this. I snuck down to, you know, see your family. I have spent four years planning this proposal, and it was probably one of the worst days I've had, most disastrous days of my life. I'm not proposing today. Like, I'll wait till another day. I'm not proposing today. I've got one shot at this, and I'm not going to waste it. I'm not going to waste it today. And then everything did go wrong, and we started working together as a team. And I realized, I don't just have one shot at this. I have a million shots at this. Because every day for the rest of my life, I just wake up, I ask myself if I'm still game to do this, and I ask you to love me. Today's just one of those days. So I brought you to the most beautiful place that I know to potentially rival your beauty to ask you, will you marry me? And he said, maybe. Now, 
He said yes. Um, and uh, I will say we just got back from Italy. Garrett got to go to the Vatican on this trip. So I feel like that kind of just happened. Um, and interestingly, the day we left for this Italy trip was exactly 10, 10 years to the day that I got sick, which was kind of an interesting uh, full circle moment. Wow. Like, thank goodness. I mean, this is terrible to say, but like you getting sick, like brought you this beautiful like journey that unfolded yeah. that it's like, had that not happened, then, you know, you, you'd be in a different place. So like how all the synchronicities just kind of lined up and now you're in this beautiful marriage today, which who, who would have thought, I mean, your friends and family growing up and in, in your yourself, like growing up dating women, um, even when you were, you were openly dating, not really knowing. And then, yeah, today, here you are 10 years later to, to get to experience that. I just, it, it is all unbelievable. It is movie worthy. When you told me that story, I'm like, these two need to go on uh, amazing race. <laughs> I just thought like, we would then, love that. Oh, well, you know, I, I, I think it's now become good luck because even for the musical, you know, the premiere, a bunch of things went wrong that day and we were sprinting to the premiere. And I said, Garrett, this is not how I want to go to my premiere. And Garrett's like, yeah, but with us, is there any other way? Like, this is, <laughs> is the way that we have to go, of course. And so, yes, I'm a big scavenger for Hunt fan. I would love if producers are listening, call us for the amazing race. We will go on it. Oh my gosh, I would absolutely be getting the popcorn and the M&Ms and the, and, and uh, watching you two. I feel like just the way that you talk about your relationship that, I don't know, you guys just have like this, this great, I don't know, interconnection, this, this woven way of like, just complimenting each other. So, so great that, yeah, the two of you could zip around the world and go through any challenge and still come out at the end of it happy maybe a little hangry maybe sure. a little sweaty uh, and and course. drowned out in the rain but at the end of the day when you sit back um like just circling back to the beginning and those six words that you said you're still like living this successful life that you've kind of created for yourself Thank you. You know, one of my friends, um, she said, you know, you guys have helped me to believe in love because she's kind of on the dating circuit. And we all know dating apps can be uh, torturous sometimes today. Um, and she said, because you made me realize that I don't have to hold so true to kind of a list of qualifications. Like you two shouldn't work on paper. You don't seem like the type of, and to be honest, if we met in a dating app, very likely we wouldn't be together. Um, when I first met Garrett, I thought he was boring and too reserved and he thought I was obnoxious and too loud. And so for sure, I think um, we were friends for six years or we were acquaintances at least for six years before we were together. And it's crazy to me because I, you know, I never thought anything of him. I didn't think he was particularly attractive. Um, but now we were on a boat in Italy and I took about 500 pictures of him because I think he's the most beautiful person I've ever seen in my life. And that was actually a big shifting moment for myself because I thought if I could go from not being attracted to Garrett to thinking he's the most beautiful person in the world 
just because I'm in love with him, what would happen if I loved myself? And how would I see myself and my own body? And that really began to change my own body image things as well. Oh, wow. Yeah. Turn that love inward and just, I just can't even, that's just, yeah. What, what would life be like? Um, so now you are helping people on their journey, right? So where can everybody find you, connect with you? Can you just kind of in a few sentences, I guess, tell us why, if somebody's listening right now and they're just like, feeling so attracted to your energy. Like you just have this energy and it's like, you know, people, people get it. Like for some people it's Oprah, for some people it's Ellen, for some people it's me, for some people it's you, but you know, when there's somebody and you're just like, they just have this like really magnetic energy that you just like feel so drawn to. If somebody's listening right now and they're like, I just feel so drawn in and I want to see where my story could lead and maybe yeah. work with you. Like, why would they come to work with you and uh, where can they find you? Yeah, so, you know, um, first of all, if anyone's interested in this idea of mapping sensitivities, which is what I call it, um, we have a free resource on my website. So you can just go to mikeimle.com slash map, M-A-P. It's a worksheet and uh, a 30-minute training. I'll be honest, it's not the full two and a half hours of working with me, but I try to give as much for free as possible. So it's pretty good. And that really just walks you through and guides you through how to understand what are those things you subconsciously do when you're successful and fulfilled. You know, I think that magnetism that you just spoke about is really um, me being in my own flow, right? Me knowing who I am. And like, I know that, you know, I'm zany and I'm vulnerable and leaning into exactly who I am so I can make every conversation feel like coffee with a best friend. That's what I want because it's more enjoyable for me. It's more comfortable for everyone. And I can share my medicine and help people more. Um, and that's what I want for everybody else. So whether it's for business, whether it's for relationships, I work with people across the board, go to that mikeiamelli.com slash map, M-A-P. Um, you can download, you can get some free resources there. If you do want to work with me one-on-one, uh, I take about two and a half hours and I basically explain the why behind anything in your life. So it could be why am I stuck in this pattern or why uh, did this relationship feel good but not that one? Why is my business taking off? Whatever that is. That's something that we do in that work and I run a few groups. And you can also follow me on Instagram. Um, my Instagram is a little more geared toward the queer community uh, because so many people are asking for resources about the work there. So if you are in the queer community, beautiful. If you're not, you can still follow me, but you might see some more queer-focused content there. But I work with people across every lived experience in my practice. I love it all. Well, thank you so much for sharing your your story today. I feel like you just lifted me up, inspired so many people, and given... Um, Given a lot of people, I don't, I don't want to say not, not like a wake up call, but like maybe like a curiosity or maybe asking themselves some more questions to figure out what does it feel like? What does success feel like to me? And just looking at things a little bit differently because your story is so different. Like one that is, is movie worthy or that you don't, it's probably happening every day but maybe haven't heard a story like this before. Yeah. So thank you absolutely. for sharing. It was all just absolutely love and beautiful and loved it all. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining me on today's episode of All Things Relatable. If you know someone that would relate to this episode and get value from it, 
please pass it along. Also, if this episode resonated with you, I would love for you to rate, review, and subscribe.